Ofeuia conlangoriu, Yocumputorei, Wayo utalao, Chelanke fachoi, We che pipe, pipao fachaole. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me in Wisconsin is William Annis. Hello. And up in New Jersey, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. And we have a special guest today. Um, we have Jim Henry on the show. Uh, he is the creator of, of our featured Con Lang we're going to have today. And, uh, so, Jim, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself, how you got into conlanging and such? Um, I got interested in linguistics at college. Um, my college didn't have a linguistics program, and I wasn't necessarily interested in measuring it anyway, but I read whatever linguistics books were available in the library and whatever I could find online. Um, and got into um, conlanging at about the same time and started learning Esperanto at about the same time. Um, mm-hmm. I created several small sketchy art links about that time, in 1996 and thereabouts. I had done some even sketchier art links earlier when I first discovered Tolkien. And then um, in 1998, I started working on my main project, which is Kazimba, and it's a personal um, language, a kind mm-hmm. of inflating art lang or an art lang inflating. Um, <laughs> I use it pretty much every day um, in, in one way or another. Yeah, um, and uh, just so people know, Kazimba uh, is what our featured conlang today, but before we get to that, we're just going to do what we normally do on our show and talk about one major, this, this is a big linguistics topic that we're doing this time, and we're going to talk about the noun phrase. So, <laughs> William, you said, you say your use of the noun phrase should not be taken in, in, to indicate any ideological commitments to this or that linguistic theory, right? Right. The problem is, is that noun phrase is kind of a funny phrase hmm. because not all noun phrases are phrases like yeah. dog or mm-hmm. cat. Um, and some noun phrases don't even have nouns in them, like the quick and the dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we should say at the most basic, a noun phrase is a noun and, and, the uh, sort of modifiers, and it's more. Uh, it, it depends on. I think William, the reason you put in your notes this this thing about the different linguistic theories is it kind of depends on what your theoretical framework is. What specifically the noun a noun phrase means? Is that right? Um, yes. What a noun phrase means in the theoretical sense depends a lot on what linguistic theory you subscribe to. Mm. I'm I'm really not interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to bring up that, you know, we're going to be talking about noun phrases and what do noun phrases do, right? They're arguments to verbs, but they're not always phrases and they're not always have nouns in them, even though they're going to function the same way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's kind of get started. Um, you You also put in your notes that uh, we're talking about configurational languages. We're kind of 
you you want to kind of limit things to that because in our non-configurationality episode, we mentioned that, you know, noun phrases get kind of torn apart in some languages, right? They can. They can. And, you know, you might have a mostly non-configurational language, but still requires what we would consider the noun phrase to be kept together. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, do you have any kind of thoughts about sort of definitional things before we get on into the meat of the, the topic? So, um, you, you mentioned, um, noun phrases with no overt context to click in the dead, where you've got, um, adjectives standing in for an adjective plus head, presumably a, a, an omitted head noun. Mm-hmm. Um, we consider their pronouns to be noun phrases as well? Uh, yeah, that's one of those theoretical questions. I would say no. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was taught in linguistic cla- linguistics classes that pronouns replace a noun phrase, but well, they tend to fill the same spot in a sentence as a noun phrase, and yet in most languages they have a similar structure than noun phrases can enjoy have. Mm-hmm. Um, and having infinite properties is unusual, unusual perhaps in allowing modifiers on pronouns. Um, mm-hmm. Right. That's probably the the main test to tell the difference between a noun and a pronoun in languages where they're sort of formally indistinct is going to be what kinds of things can go with it. So, mm-hmm. like you said, normally adjectives and other determiners do not go with pronouns, nor can you possess them. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little, it, it gets a little tricky. Um, that's the governing, right? The control and all that. Well, again, that depends, depends on belief on in a particular theory, theory but... <laughs> yeah. huh. Okay. Um, so let's kind of move on. Since we've gotten our definitions sort of straight, and even though it's, we're kind of being a little uh, tricky, let's get into more uh, into nuts and bolts of what options you have when you're figuring out how noun phrases are ordered, how they're constructed, that sort of thing. Yeah. So really, in terms of the the big top level thing is what order of elements happen within your noun phrase? Where does your adjective come in relationship to the noun? Where do demonstratives come in relation to the noun or determiners? Um, Where do numbers come? You know, so like these three large books, Mm -hmm. right? What's the order for those? Good old Greenberg gives us his typology, and in general, SOV languages have a, a strong tendency to particular word orders or particular orders of elements of a noun phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to, I mean, when he first did his work, there was a thought that VSO and SEO languages had strong tendencies too, but as we get more data from more languages, this all tends to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right, in general, SOV, you expect things to pile up before the noun. Yeah. Much like in English, these three large dogs or books or whatever. Um, it's, it's, that's kind of weak. Um, one of the things I found when I was doing research for this paper or for this topic is, you know, when Greenberg first did his work in, I forget when, he thought that of the 24 possible orders of Noun, adjective, number, determiner. He said only 12 of those were possible. Okay. And then 
somebody came along and said, oh, no, we found some more data. So then it went up to 14 and then up to 18. And then this right from 14. And then this paper I just found here added four new orders in just one language. (laughs) Oh, dear. So now we're only six possible orders away from having all possible things. Is it <laughs> is it determiner, numeral, noun, adjective, or numeral, noun, adjective, determiner? All of these things are, are, are possible. It seems like it's most common for your noun to go on one end and everything else to go on the other end. Mm-hmm. Sort of a head initial or head final right. structure. But that is by no means, by no means the only possible order found in natural languages even there's yeah. another um thing that can go into a noun phrase that isn't necessarily indefinite quantifiers um aren't necessarily ordered the same way as numerals for instance in english you've got all these books versus um these three books right and uh so that adding a, an additional uh thing to the order that would give us a lot much larger number of possible orderings and I'm not sure how many of those would be actually used mm-hmm Hmm. You know, I didn't see anything really on that specifically when I was looking. So yeah, that adds a nice little bit of a little extra complexity. Um, and then if you have a language that has numeral classifiers, where does mm-hmm. a classifier go in all of this? <laughs> That's true. Um, um, usually those become, come between a numeral and a noun, don't they? Or between uh, whatever they, they, Go with they them. often go there, but you're used to Chinese. There are other languages that are noun, numeral, determiner. Yeah, I've heard of that. Uh, okay. I've heard of that, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will let people who are interested in that particular question research it themselves. So, yeah, <laughs> this, that, this, that, is, this is such a complex topic now. <laughs> you wouldn't, again, want another one where I'm like, oh, this should be easy, but no. <laughs> noun phrases are complicated. So, do we need to say anything more about ordering? Uh, I don't know. Mike, do you have any questions? Uh, no, not any questions. I was just trying to find where that was, that measure word thing. I'll find it, figure it out later. Okay. <laughs> um, Jim, do you have any other notes on just the plain up ordering, the, the basic ordering here before we um, go yeah. into? There's, um, the ordering of within a given group in that overall order. Like the order, the different adjectives come in if you've got more than one adjective on a noun phrase. Oh, yeah. I think we're kind of going to move into that, aren't we? Um, okay. Do you have any specific thoughts on that, like order of, of adjectives or anything? So I found several papers reporting to give um, an, a parity of um, semantic categories of adjectives. Mm-hmm. Um, those higher in the hierarchy tend to go further from the noun, um, and those lower in the hierarchy tend to go closer to the noun. Um, uh. This one paper I'm looking at that I'm pretty sure I sent y'all a link to um, has quality, size, shape, color, provenance. Okay. Um, and then the author of this paper goes on to say that they've been looking at um, what they call operator adjectives. They give it two examples, uh, former and alleged. Um, so, um, the, and I search that those aren't as strictly ordered as the types of uh, adjectives uh, in, in the what nearly accepted hierarchy. So is that something, is that paper talking about cross-linguistically, this is what tends to happen? Um, so let's see, the one I'm looking at here is 
ICBIC ordering restrictions and the interface between meaning and form. I'm not 100% sure I sent y'all a link to that. That may be, um, anyway, if I haven't yet, I'll, I will. Um, Jet ordering restrictions revisited. I'm quite sure I sent you a link to that. I think I probably quoted from that as well in the email. Um, so, um, they give an example, um, in English, a beautiful small black purse is well formed, whereas orders like beautiful black small purse, a small beautiful black purse, etc., uh, seem a little off with not alphabetical. Okay. And the other paper gives a few more, uh, categories besides the ones, examples there, the, uh, uh, um, quality size and uh, in, in, in that example, there's a few other uh, categories that different papers list. One paper I'm looking at uh, um, about there's not not one category of color as there's two different categories with restrictions. One for native Arab um, colors, color words, black, red, and white. And one for um, color words borrowed from Greek. So the, oh. the, the I, I, I'm I'm in that reception, but one of those orders closer to the noun than uh, provenance or nationality adjectives, while the other orders further for the noun. I'm not sure which it is, but it'll be in the show notes, I reckon. Mm, okay. yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. So it's yeah. it's not necessarily that these things are that. There is a, a set hierarchy cross linguistically, but it's more that there are, if I'm understanding what you're saying, Jim, it's more that there are sort of, um, there may be something that's a little, some tendency that tends to be more common, but there are, but there are differences among languages. And I think, uh, William, you said, you said something about that too, like difference between uh, English and ancient Greek and in multiple attribution. Oh, well, that's, that's a different question. That, that um, was a different question. Yeah. So, so I'm looking, I'm looking at one of the links that Jim sent and there does seem to be that these orders, certain of these orders are common cross linguistically. Okay. Um, so things like ordering value, size, and color appear to reflect universal. Uh huh. Um, the degree that we can say things are universal, um, and and the the local tweakage may be may be different. Okay. So once you've determined your order of multiple adjectives, the next question is: Can you just make piles of them, like we can in English? Right, the large noisy dog. Um, you could not do that in most varieties of ancient Greek. You have to use the word "and" between each adjective. Okay, yeah, that was the thing that you were mentioning. Right, I, the big I was and blue kind of and, yeah, the big and blue and angry duck. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, I wonder if that correlates with anything else, um, with morphology or anything. I, it doesn't seem like it because ancient Greek would have more complex adjective morphology than English does, but then. Right, I have no idea why. Or yeah. where Greek got that rule, but that's the way it is. Okay. Um, so one thing that we've been skipping over in relation to the noun phrase is where do your relative clauses go? Yeah. In general, they tend to pile up where everything else piles up. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's a tendency with everything falling apart in the usual expected ways. So English puts all of its 
determiners and adjectives and numbers before the noun, but the relative clause comes after. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas your your SOV language will not only do that, have everything before the noun, but it will also typically have the relative clause come before. Okay. Jim, were you going to say something? Um, yes. I've also seen, um, I don't have it in front of me, but um, John Hawkins' book on word order universals also distinguishes the where the genitive noun or the genitive noun phrase comes within within an overall noun phrase relative to relative clause and the adjective numeral determiner, etc. Um, if I recall correctly, he argues that um, heavier modifiers like the genitive and the relative clause tend to go further from the noun um, than uh, lighter um, modifiers like adjectives and numerals. And he also argues, if I recall correctly, that if um, some of these items go before a noun and others go afterward, it seems to be the heavier modifiers that go afterward. Okay. That makes sense. Now, by heavier, you mean like more complex, right? Yes. Like a vote of clause is, he- is more complex than a genitive phrase, and a genitive phrase is more complex than a simple adjective. Okay. That seems to make sense with what I know of different languages. I know that... Um, of course, in English, the genitive comes before any other modifiers, right? Um, it kind of replaces the, the determiner spot slot. Yeah, some people, well, it depends on the genitive. Like, a, a possessive mm-hmm. pronoun in some schools of thought are also determiners of a sort. Yeah, well, I'm talking about, uh, I guess, both possess- possessive pronouns and um, apostrophe S genitives. Right. Of course, right. when you're using of, that's a different structure. I know that... Uh, English, uh, you can't get anything useful about uh, English relative clauses because the relative clause follows. But in Chinese, where everything goes before, I know that the relative clause usually comes first before any adjectives. So it's that that makes sense, and it makes sense in sort of a a, a logical sort of um, I don't know intuitive sense because well, you. I was going to say cognitive sense. Cognitive sense. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I mean, you just you have to process things, and you do not want like a genitive or a relative clause doing things like separating determiners from nouns. Right. You don't want you don't want some big long thing to uh, separate the smaller things from the noun if you can avoid it. Yeah, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, it makes it easier to parse, probably. Although that Jim, gets yeah, Jim, were you going to say something? Um, yes, I don't actually speak German, but I've heard a certain construction in Esperanto criticized as a Germanism, where you have article, then a prepositional phrase, and then the head noun of the article, and end prepositional phrase. I don't know uh, how common or universal or uh, persistent a pattern that is in German, but something like that occurs. So you're uh. saying the word the, a prepositional phrase, and then the noun? Yes. Oh, that's very, very, very ancient Greek. <laughs> mm. <laughs> of course, everything's going to Greek. Well, I would, I would, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens in German too. Uh, but I can't, I can't recall. Well, my it's been a long time since I've studied German, so I'll, I'll just be quiet. I don't know much about German either, so I, I should probably shouldn't say anything. Mike, do you know anything about German? I don't really, but if you think, um, I'm just trying to think of situations where a freight, like a. A uh, prepositional phrase might glom itself into the noun phrases like that. So if you say like you know like the the man on the moon's left toe, 
the apostrophe S doesn't go on the man's. It's not the man's on the moon left toe, but the man well, on the moon's left toe. So that that's a, well, that's a different. I don't know. That's more more of what the like the genitive it because that the genitive S always applies to the whole noun phrase. That's a whole yeah, other just, issue. That well, that's a good point that we've not talked about. Is where does case marking go on your noun phrase? Mm-hmm. Is it only going on the noun? Are there agreement patterns? Is it like English, where the entire noun phrase gets that clitic apostrophe s? And there's languages that do even um, more than that. I think we've mentioned on other other shows languages that put uh, an ergative clitic that is after the whole noun phrase and stuff right. like that. It can it could be any case that does that. It just happens that English developed in a, a peculiar way. Yeah. I don't know if it's that peculiar. Well, it's yeah. not. Sorry. In a regular way. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, lost, we lost all the cases except for on pronouns. Yeah. And then the genitive suffix just detached itself. <laughs> Poor English and its morpheme envy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the case. But I just brought that up because um, you know, I was trying to think of where you had a phrase, like a prepositional phrase, sort of I guess I don't know if I'd say insinuating itself into um where, you know, like if you didn't have that man on the moon's left toe, you just said the man's left toe, you know, that on the moon prepositional phrase kind of goes inside nested between the phrase mark the um case marking and the noun, where what we were talking about with German, um, you had the article, and then that prepositional phrase nestling itself in there, and then the noun. So that's why I just brought that up. Um, I think one could make an argument that the man on the moon is a relative clause that has been reduced. Because in English, I can say the man I saw yesterday, or the man whom I saw yesterday, and both are quite understandable. So and they're both relative clauses. So the man on the moon is the man who is on the moon. Mm. So that's a relative clause, attach the noun, and then your apostrophe S has to follow that. Okay. Right? So <laughs> if you have case marking on the entire noun phrase, pay attention to where your attributive prepositional phrases go, because you might mm. end up getting something like English, or you might get something completely different. Or maybe you'll decide that you always have to give an overt relative construction. That that could uh, That could be useful and we probably shouldn't go delving too far into different ways you can do relative clauses because that's a whole other show that is yeah. a whole other show <laughs> uh i i have ideas floating around my head but uh let's let's kind of move on to more noun phrase stuff mm. yeah um so does anyone uh, else have anything to say about just mechanics of those because i have some i I've, I've got my list of exotica that i'm ready to move on to hmm. um Anybody else? Uh, Mike, do you have anything? The only thing I would, I don't know if this would be a good point to go into um, the d- definiteness because we were just talking about the article or uh, if we would come back to that later. Um, I don't know. Definiteness is like a whole other, I don't, the definiteness is a whole other subject, I think. Well, where it figures into this is just where it mechanically fits with the noun. Like if you're talking about, I guess that we, that would also be covered under Maybe you could think about how you mark cases and then how you mark definiteness because you could mark it on the whole the whole phrase with a separate word like English, or you could mark it with uh, on the verb like in Hungarian, or you could mark it um, with uh, clitic like in uh, Hebrew or um, Arabic. 
So, I mean, the only place it really, the, the tie I saw in for the noun phrase is, you know, in the mechanics of figuring out the skeletal structure of your noun phrase, your determiner will probably have a place in there. Yeah. And uh, Hungarian, Hungarian also has an over-definite marking in yeah. addition to the funkiness of the verb system. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or do you even mark definiteness at all? Some languages sort of let definiteness be marked in odder ways. Yeah, Russian doesn't have a defin- uh, definiteness, really. Right. Yeah. Um, in, term- in terms of the noun phrase, the only thing we're thinking about is some kinds of determiners, like demonstrative pronouns especially, mm-hmm. might require a definite noun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that's pretty common. Uh, as always, ancient Greek, if you say, you can't say this dog, you have to say this the dog. Okay. And, but I, I say that about Greek, but there are plenty of other languages that do the same thing. Well, I was saying where we, we were talking about, um, how with definiteness marking, some, like in, I think, uh, was it ancient Greek, William, that you said you have to say this the dog? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know, I think in, uh, Italian, when they talk about, like, my, sister or my friend i think you say like you say the article and you say the possessive pronoun like la mia princesa or il mio principe or something like that right um whereas in spanish you don't have that so it's it's some um you know some languages the um determiner is there in addition to having uh, possessive pronouns some it isn't some they have special words that'll accomplish that but but, um yeah that's where you don't you like Maybe you should think one should think about that when they're thinking about where their um the pieces of their noun phrase go and how they fit together. Okay. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we could probably do a whole episode on definiteness or at least if, if on determiners in general. Yeah. Um, I agree. So <laughs> we can probably shove that. So William, let's have your uh your list of exotica that you were going to say. Well, it's not so much exotica as a grab bag of things to think about. Okay. So the first mm. point is don't get caught up in purely reductive compositional semantics. What I mean by this is demonstratives and determiners and adjectives can do more than you think. Okay. Right. Mm. In our normal standard sort of linguistics and syntax, we're told, you know, you take a noun, and then the adjective somehow describes the noun. Yeah. Except if in English, if I say something like, where's my damn book? Hmm. The word damn is not doing a normal adjective thing. No. I've heard it said that in this use, it has the syntax of an adjective and the semantics of a growl. <laughs> <laughs> right? It is not doing, even though it patterns like an adjective, it is not doing what we think adjectives do, which is modify nouns. So there's some interesting possibilities you can play with there. Second of all, um, demonstratives can be used to convey all sorts of additional sentences. Once again, ancient Greek, this is very rude. The word this, hutos, is very rude when used to refer to a person. Okay. Um, especially if it's used by itself um, in place of a full noun phrase. Um, and then another good example is in post-Christian Rabbinical literature, the phrase zot ish in Hebrew just means that man, and mm-hmm. it always means it always means Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's, it's yeah, so it's it, but it's a, a linguistic expression of a, a pretty deep theological dispute. So 
there are things you can do with the noun phrase parts that don't, you know, that are, that are working at a higher level of discourse than just, you know, here's your adjective and it's a property of the noun, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Anybody else have any final thoughts before oh, we I move have, on? But I wanted to say one more thing. Oh, one, <laughs> you had you had another thing. I'm sorry. I did have um, another thing. So the noun phrase can be used as a tool of historical linguistics. Oh. Some adjectives get used so often with a noun that they may take over the noun's oh. job completely. Um, so, for example, the word in Latin for land, terra, means mm -hmm. dry in most of its relative languages. Ooh, okay. Right? So saying dry land became such a fixed phrase that land just disappeared altogether. Mm -hmm. huh. um, and in Homer, the word for barley just means white. <laughs> um, uh. in, 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 in related languages. So as we, as we talked about way at the beginning, the quick and the dead, which you can think about as a noun phrase where the noun has just is not overt. Sometimes adjectives can get turned into nouns by this process yeah i, I was uh yeah, I, listening to this podcast about that a lot i'm sorry does that a lot having the the uh adjective stand in for the whole for um things with that quality yes yes which it also does with per participles which can be very confusing wait what does that ancient greek oh okay um but what i was gonna say i was watching this video on youtube today and uh it said that i think the word for field is the same as easy in the sense of like not difficult. So I don't know if that's another instance of this kind of um, a noun phrase being used as an adjective and being transferred that way somehow. But um, it was just interesting that we mentioned it because I just saw that today. That's an that's it's an interesting way to have things get derived. Sort of a um, that's a that's a, a curious way that for semantic shifting to occur. Sure. Mm -hmm. And, and then the last thing I just wanted to mention historically is over time, demonstratives, determiners tend to get dissolved and turned into definite markers. Mm, okay. That's all. All right. I see. Like, okay. Um, anybody else have any last comments on the noun phrase? Mike? No, I don't know. Mike, nope. do you have anything? Okay. Well, um, we're going to move on then and talk about, uh, it's Gyazimbun. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm pronouncing that right, Jim, right? Am I? Pretty nearly. Yeah, <laughs> Pretty nearly. Okay. Nice. Um, the circumflex is A. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Gyazimbun. Uh, Gyazimbun. It's a little, it's a little difficult from the orthography. Why don't you actually see, um, introduce your language for us. I know you talked a little bit about it on the top at the top of the show, but just talk about uh, what went into designing the language and anything that you kind of would want to highlight for us. And then we'll, we'll kind of jump in. All right. Okay. Um, so as I said, it's an um, interlang art lang. It's, it's an art lang um, with um, non-naturalistic properties. It's not intended to be a fictional, plausible language that, would have evolved naturally, okay. <clears throat> but it's also um, not as objective or uh, public um, in its design criteria as a typical Inchlang closure bond or a typical um, Oxlang like Esperanto. It's designed to be easy for me to learn to use while still being interestingly strange. Mm. Um, but interesting to me, I mean, I'm not 
designing it to be people, easy people in general. So if there are properties that make it peculiar, are peculiar to me, um, that, those might go into the language. Or if there are accidents of the language development process that leave certain irregularities in the language, I'm not going to design those out if I've already learned to use them fluently by the time I notice they're irregular. Hmm. Oh, okay. So as for the actual um, typological, typological properties of the language, it's a fluid S active language would probably be the best way to describe its um, um, typology in that respect. It tends to have um, object, verb, subject order, but the order of the non-phrases in the verb within the sentence is fairly fluid. Hmm. Um, it's um, postpositional, and it uses postpositions for grammatical uh, roles as well as uh, spatial and um, temporal marking and so forth. So there are, um, for instance, postpositions referring to specifying the agent, the patient, the object of attention, uh, the object of result, and so on and so forth. Okay. So do you have anything you want to say, or can I start asking questions? <laughs> um, say that again. Uh, do you have anything more you wanted to cover before I start asking questions? Yeah. Uh, no, go ahead. So the sound system, how did you decide that you wanted clicks to be pronouns? Um, I don't remember. That's 12, 14, no, 14 years ago. Okay. And uh, I seem to recall, I found it easier to cl- pronounce clicks on their own than as part mm-hmm. of a larger syllable. Uh-huh. And it's, so it seemed um, natural for me to try to use those as uh, syllable nuclei. But then on the other hand, it also seems hard to put anything else into that syllable after you've got the click there as a, as a syllable nucleus. So I've got these um, phonemes that don't really work well with other phonemes, so to speak, um, at least the way I'm, I, I'm able to pronounce them at the time. And I say, well, what about have those be a small closed class of uh, particles? Well, maybe what about personal pronouns? At least that's how I reconstruct my thought process at this point. Uh-huh. I didn't actually write all this down at the time, and I've lost some of my earliest notes, so I'm not sure that was the actual thought process, but it seems plausible. Sure. Mm. So that's just surprising to me that there were click consonants from the get-go. Yeah. I like, um, so I'm looking a little bit at your materials on your site. I like that you actually have an essay saying, does uh, Gazembun violate linguistic universals? And you talk about a whole bunch of things about how it actually does violate quite a few universals or at least um tendencies of natural languages i like that uh sort of you you decided it's very uh to you're you're very aware of that but still decided to keep it the way it was right there are some aspects that turned out to be hard to use i won't say impossible to learn but they were harder to learn than other aspects of the language and so i eventually changed them to something more naturalistic mm-hmm. uh the um structure of comparison for instance uh, changed a lot a few years ago when I finally decided I couldn't get the original version to work. Mm-hmm. There's something about that in the universal violation essay there. I had to stay away from the computer to get photoception, so I can't point it out exactly right now. Sure. I mean, for me, this really interesting question is, so what if a language violates linguistic universals? As we've seen as more and more languages become available to use as data in typology, we discover that universals are even weaker than we once thought, and that was not very strong to start with. Right. 
And, and even if something never occurs in a single natural human language currently spoken, it doesn't mm-hmm. follow from that that it's not actually unlearnable, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's what this experiment is. Uh, hope, uh, what I hope to learn something from this experiment as, as an experiment. Um, of course, this one person trying to learn one language can't absolutely prove anything one way or another about whether something is learnable, but it's one more data point. Sure. But, um, um, I did find... I, I did find that interesting. I also find it interesting that you have a lot of texts, which makes sense since you said you you try to use this language almost every day, right? Yes, I, I write in it um, probably several times a week on average, mm-hmm. and I think in it and and, and uh, talk to myself in it um, pretty much every day. Yeah, I was I was especially uh, pleased that you decided to translate an XKCD cartoon. <laughs> Yes, uh, two of them actually. Yeah. One of them included in the grammar is an example of question formation, and mm-hmm. uh, the other one is on the picture site in the yeah. pictures gallery. Okay. Um, so, when you say that you speak to yourself in this language daily, is uh, why is this to learn the language? Um, yes, it's because it's fun to use, uh-huh. um, and, and also in order to learn it, that, that was probably the. Uh, the original goal was in, use it in order to learn it, but now it's use it because it's fun to use. Using it for writing my uh, diary is, for again, for multiple reasons, partly originally to get better at using it, and then because writing it is fun, and because uh, writing in it has a greater feeling of privacy sure. than when writing in English yeah. or Esperanto. Right. That's mm-hmm. um, over and above the actual probability of anybody cutting across the diary and looking at it. Mm-hmm. The, the uh, Knowing that um, there's nobody else who fluently reads this language um, mm-hmm. makes it more private, e- even if it's already extremely improbable that anybody will get access to the physical diary. Yeah. Well, yeah, and like I guess it's more layers of protection because they'd have to get access to your diary, get access to, and then know to look online for your your lexica and um, and your grammar and be able to translate it. So it would somebody would have to really want to know about you before they, they were able to read your diary entries. Indeed. I think. It would probably take months, if not years, of work to to uh get to where someone else could, could use the language to that level. Yeah. And presumably different periods of your diary are in different stages of development of the language. Exactly so. Can um, you still read the material you originally wrote? Um it's a little bit hard to make sense of some of the very early entries. Anything from about 2004 onward um, can be a little archaic, but still understandable. Uh-huh. Um, some of the earliest stuff from about late 1998, early 1999, um, I, I have a hard time understanding some of the more complex sentences there. Mm-hmm. So um, I, one of the sentences sitting here in front of me on the derivational page says, she arrived at 1 o'clock p.m. Yes. Could you produce that spontaneously without having your notes in front of you? Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Huh, wow. A strong wind started up about then. Can you hear, could you hear that? Yeah, well, yes. I heard that. Um, people, um, in case I cut out the earlier part, I, I want to uh, let people know, Jim actually had to go outside to get reception, so he's very far away from his notes. <laughs> he, he just got 
that just came up off the top of his head. Um, I like that you have, um, I'm looking through your dictionary and you do a good job of doing, uh, sort of less Englishy words. I notice you have a word that means spilled beer, but then that means. Uh, yeah, that's more an example of the, um, of a derivational operation than a word that really needs to be in the lexicon because it wouldn't be understandable otherwise. Okay, so um, it's, there are it's actually. Things like that, that, right, the uh, ya suffix applied to words that mean liquids mean to spill or, or a puddle of that. Oh, um, okay. As opposed to a more better organized block method liquid. Mm-hmm. Um, if you uh, click on the suffix there, okay. you should get the definition of it um, and possibly some examples. I don't know if I've had any examples for that yet. Okay. Um, but you also have a lot of other words that are clearly semantically different from English. You have one that's go between delegate, representative, agent, intermediary, importer, translator. All of that is one word. And you, I also noted you have one that means, uh, you have listed here squirrel, uh, chipmunk, marmot, prairie dog, etc. Basically one word that covers the family scurry day? Yes. So um, is that a general thing that you were, um, you have words for particular, for families of animals rather than individual species, or is that just that one? It's not always at the level of family. If you go to the categorical lexicon and mm-hmm. then um, search for uh, an animal species or a Latin family or, uh, or genus name, you'll find some of them are, um, uh, a few of the older words are, are uh, folk, animal, folk uh, taxonomy, uh, mm-hmm. without a specific uh, reference of what uh, of, of a particular Latin classification taxon or clade. But uh, most of the newer words for animals and plants uh, refer to some level of the Linnaean hierarchy higher than species. Sometimes it's genus, sometimes it's family, sometimes it's size, order, or super family. That's interesting. Hmm. And you have stuff like, and you have, uh, interesting sort of ways of deriving directions. I'm seeing this thing. Bill is north at through, beam north at part of, bean north at contact, being north at inside. Is that, uh, that looks like it's a regular thing that you, you decided yeah, if to. You look at the, at the main syntax document and then click the link in the table of contents for Spatial post positions, ah, okay. Um, or space time post positions, you'll get the uh, details of how that system is built up. Mm. Um, a lot of the entries in the lexicon for the uh, spatial uh, and, and temporal post positions are automatically generated from the script that put together the different elements of the definition. But a mm-hmm. lot of them are going back through and rewriting uh, more uh, perspicuous definitions for them, mm, <clears> like okay. uh, there, long before, here, long afterward. Um, um, and similarly to some of the, the compass direction words. Okay. Um, so, I don't know. I think that's an, an interesting thing. I think that our listeners should probably take note of that because, you know, you can look through, look through, listeners, look through Jim's dictionary and look at this. Realize that this is not meant to be a naturalistic language, mm-hmm. but... At the same time, he has a lot of interesting derivational stuff and a lot of interesting semantic stuff in addition to interesting grammar stuff that he's doing. 
Yeah, I liked the I liked the a lot of the derivational stuff. I, I was especially pleased to notice that you have two separate words for conlanger, one for a random conlanger and one for one who's lucky enough to get paid to do the job. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, um, yeah, I've got two different um, derivational suffixes for adjective, um, somebody who does something habitually, uh, corresponding to er um, or ist in English. So there's one for somebody who does it professionally and some one for somebody who does it avocationally or as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, what was I say? Another thing I noticed just in terms of um, how to deal with foreign words, I, I noticed that you have a raft of particles to deal with, or derivational elements rather, to deal with foreign names, which I thought was yeah. interesting because from time to time I played with the idea of having a particle just to say the following word comes from someplace else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might have. It, it might be in some ways um, uh, more clear um, to mark foreign words in the beginning instead of in the end. But it seems more consistent in the general overall design of the language to use suffixes there. Sure. To use everywhere else. Or um, doesn't Japanese use the different like there's uh, hiragana and then katakana for the foreign words? Something like that would also be kind of like a you wouldn't have to worry about before or after. But it is interesting to mark the words down whether they're from a foreign from a foreign language or from whether they're from your language. Yeah, the, the kana thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, the kana thing is just just um. <sighs> orthographic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I stole that feature from uh, Borling, Rick Harrison's English language, art language. Sure. Um, I, I stole several features from Borling, but it's been so long since I've looked at it that I can't remember exactly which ones they were. Um, it was uh, one of the languages that influenced me in the early design period. Right, right. It's hard to find information on Borling these days. Um, yeah, I think some of the information that used to be online is not there anymore. Yep. Um, it's pretty much just the grammar and not all the text and lexicon that used to be there, maybe. I don't remember for sure. Right. Yeah, no, it's been hard to find because I was sort of thinking we should discuss it. But So how do you, just as a, a boring mechanical issue, how do you manage your dictionary? Uh, the, the primary version of it is an ASCII text file tab delimited, which I edit in Emacs and then search with a grep. Or, or uh-huh. with the search, search functions within Emacs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also got some Perl scripts for searching it for patterns. Um, for instance, uh, if I'm quoting a new word and I think of a, a sound I want to have the word to have, I could plug that into a find similar script that spits mm-hmm. out all the, all the uh, words that are similar in sound to that new, new possible new word. And I see if the, the, the new word is too similar in sound to an existing word. Uh, at least they're in the same semantic field. And uh, similarly, there are full scripts that process that text file into the uh, HTML Unicode um, uh, lexicon. The reason I was asking is because the web dictionary is highly cross-referenced, so I was wondering how on earth you manage that. Right. The cross-references are automatically generated. If you look through the English glosses, you'll see that occasionally uh, an English word that's homophonous with a... Um, a Gazimba word is, mis- is incorrectly linked. Yeah, and I noticed that. I, I haven't bothered to, to get it to stop doing that. <laughs> 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 so I, I notice in your demonstratives you distinguish anaphor from cataphor. Yes. Did you pull um, that from Greek, or did that just occur to you? Um, I don't remember if I pulled that from a specific language. 
Um, I don't remember exactly when or how I developed that. It wasn't one of the earliest features of the language. I think it came in three or four years later. Okay. Um, and it's been one of the features that had been more difficult to learn to use correctly. Um, I tend to use it a lot. The, um, the, the two, um, pronouns for referring to a whole situation referred to by, the, by a previous clause, uh, se and je. I tend to use je a lot, um, when I'm saying something happened before or after something else, and I haven't said what something else is yet. So oh, I, I see. To go into, so, um, the room get the hong, um, um, I um, went there before I talked to you. So mm. the Jevi comes before the subordinate clause saying what, what I was doing, what I, what I, what I did this before. Um, that, that, that's one of the main uses for Katafora. Okay. The um, Katafora personal pronoun and the Katafora inanimate pronoun, animate and inanimate pronoun, uh, personal pronouns are, are not used anywhere near as often. Yeah, it okay. does seem like in ancient Greek when it uses catafor, it's because it's about to introduce the next phase of a story or something. Right. One way right. He ran into the king, and then the king said this, blah, blah, blah. Right. One way that personal pronoun catafor is used is with genitives. Uh, genitive phrase tends to come at the beginning of the sentence. So if if, if I'm saying, for instance, um, uh, Tom washes car, it would be um, with a catafort pronoun at the beginning of a genitive phrase for, uh, Tom, uh, the catafort pronoun referring to, referring forward to Tom, then a genitive preposition, then car, and then, uh, object, uh, a patient preposition, then the verb wash, and then name Tom. Huh. Huh. Interesting. You have well, a set of conjunctions. I notice you say that you don't use anymore, or or you <laughs> some of them you've never used. You're not sure about. Um, yeah, th- there's uh, so um, there are uh, several different sets of conjunctions in the language. One of which um, is built up out of elements describing a truth table. So there are several of those that I've rarely or rarely or never used, and there are three of them that I use pretty often. Um, one of them extremely often and two others reasonably often. Uh, the, um, and exclusive or an inclusive or. But most of the others, um, I, I rarely or never use. Um, uh, apart from, uh, I know William is, is, is asking a bunch of syntactic questions. I want to go back to these, um, this interesting, like, semantic stuff that you do because, I just was looking through the dictionary and I saw that you have different words for a passive telepath and a telepath that can project thoughts. Is that, do you read a lot of sci-fi and found, found it yeah, necessary um, to have that? One of those words was probably coined when I was doing a Loco Vimo story about a telepath. Um, and uh, the other one I think I coined when I was writing about a dream in which I met a telepath. Oh, okay. Um, a lot of the places where the language seems to get stretched most is when I'm writing about dreams. Um, oh. Writing about okay. other ordinary daily activities, um, I tend to be able to 99% of the time use words and constructions I've already coined and know pretty well. But when I'm writing about dreams, those are, I suppose, the strangest experiences I routinely have and uh, require me to coin new vocabulary and figure out ways to describe situations that I rarely or ever actually experience in waking life. 
that makes sense. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting, again, so if we're going to talk about lexical things, is that you have two words for maybe. Yes, and I think I mentioned in the Universal's document that I, that's one of my most common disfluencies even now is to use one of those words when I mean to use the other. Oh, um, interesting. Um, I originally did that when coined those two words for maybe, one referring to maybe a situation that I have no knowledge or control over, and one for maybe I'm planning to do this and I'm not sure I'm going to do it. Hmm. And okay. I originally just uh, coined another word for maybe when I didn't realize or had forgotten that I already had one, and then realized I had two different lexicons for maybe, and said, okay, I'll distinguish them in some way. Oh, uh, that's okay. A, that's a great tip. When you have when you have two different words uh, that you didn't realize you had the first word, you know you can you can put some shade of meaning on it, or just leave it alone, and make make them synonyms. But I realize, yeah, with with uh, Gazembun, you were you're you probably are more interested in having words be different or words have different meanings, right? Um. Mike, you've been kind of quiet. Do you have any questions for Jim? I'm just, I'm looking through the lexicon here and I'm just marveling at, at it because it's really, really comprehensive. And I've, uh, you know, I usually, uh, just write my things down and can never get it all in one place like this. And this is, just, it's very thorough and it's, it's wonderful to hear, you know, about where he got his ideas from or where, how the language sort of evolved and what, how he uses it to write about dreams or, uh, go, you know, it's just, um, nice for me to hear about that because, you know, to actually speak to the person who created it is different from looking at, say, uh, J.R., one of J.R. Tolkien's languages where there is no way to speak to the creator. So oh, just, yeah. It's, it's and obviously I'm seeing words for board games and presumably places around where you are or places that you've talked about. Uh, all sorts of stuff. How many words does Gazembun have? Um, if you scroll to, into the do- bottom of the lexicon document, you'll see the list of entries in the lexicon and the uh, list of entries in various categories. Um, oh. So that there'll be the number of uh, root words and the number of total number of entries in the lexicon and total number of foreign names that are in- listed there. Um, that is kind of, at the, at the same time, it's an overestimate and an underestimate of the actual vocabulary. Yeah, um, yeah. There is about 140, uh, I counted it right before, we, uh, before you called me, about 140 or so uh, not and archaic words in the lexicon. They're there so I can look up if I've forgotten uh, words in old diary entries that are no longer used currently. They've been replaced by something, by a better, more perspicuous compound or uh, um, a new root word that doesn't have the same uh, uh, connotations as an earlier word that may have been a borrowing from the next line. Uh-huh. So there's a couple of cases where I replaced uh, a, a, a posteriori word with unwanted uh, associations with an a priori word in, um, that I, I could start over with the semantics of. Oh, okay. And there's a lot of cases where I started out with a, a notch compound word in my diary when I needed to refer to something, <clears throat> and then later when I was going through the diary, entries looking at the margin notes about new words to enter I thought, okay, I can express that better, more concisely or more conspicuously. And so I came up with a different word, but I made a notch word entry for that word that's used just once in one entire entry. Okay. You know, yeah, I deal with... There are words that I routinely use that I may have never actually made a lexicon entry for, perhaps mm-hmm. because I know them so well, or, or um, the compound 
it's a protectivist that doesn't need to intrigue as such. Right. I have to say, as an amateur classicist, I love marginalia. So the idea of needing to make margin notes on your own diary appeals to me somehow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I have, if you look at the orthography page, the, the handwritten orthography, um, you'll see there are some punctuation marks that I use for marginalia. Uh, one of them is uh, the innovation mark that shows where I've coined mm-hmm. an odd word or I've coined a new word that needs to go in the lexicon. And one is the uncertainty mark where I, I'm not sure I'm remembering the formal word right, and I go ahead and use it anyway. And if I find out later when I look it up that I was misremembering the usual form of it, I make a variant entry note. Uh-huh. Not all of those variant entry, variant uh, and erroneous forms are in the online lexicon. Only the ones that where it's, uh, there's an, you'll see that something has glosses, has a certain gloss, and then there's also the like, also a fatal error for second touch. All right. I'm trying to think if there was anything else. I mean, definitely for, for conlangers to look at this language, the derivational system is astonishing and the dictionary is pretty mm-hmm. darn full. I think those are the, the biggest things. I mean, we haven't talked about really your, your case alignment system, which is, makes a lot of distinctions. I know of no natural language that does. Mm-hmm. We could probably talk. Yeah, one of the less naturalistic aspects of the language is the um, case-like preposition system. So, um, yeah, that, that's probably one of the more interesting features of the language uh, syntactically is the uh, the preposition system, where it distinguishes agent and patient and um, experience term, object of attention, object of result, and so forth, rather than more general uh, categories like object and subject. Right. Um, and these uh, postpositions can be derived on the fly by combining one of the basic space-time postpositions with a root word for some particular concepts. So you can turn various uh, root words into postpositions by putting on, by suffixing one of the basic space, spatial postpositions to them. Um, and did, have you found it easy always to know what you should use with this or that verb, or do you have to stop and think when you... Use a new verb or a less. Stop and think. Yeah. Um, but over time, um, the situations where I have to stop and think about what's more appropriate become less frequent because I um, get more use of the language and under my belt. Sure. Uh, what was I going to? I've yeah. been working on adding um, more notes about that to the lexicon. Um, more, more places uh, where the, the, the definition for a verb will give the full argument structure for it. Right, right. I was just thinking that would, <laughs> if anyone wanted to, but other than you wanted to try to use the language, I think that would be pretty necessary. It seems like it would be easy to uh, to pick the wrong ones. Yeah. Um, another thing that I like for any conlang to be documented is you have a separate page on semantics for particular semantic fields, which is great. Yeah. I mean, did you think in terms of semantic fields starting early in your vocabulary, or is this a refinement that yeah. came later? That um, one of the, my, one of my original design goals was to have it very semantically uh, distinct from the languages I was familiar with. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I did give thought to working for, uh, on different semantic fields one after another, and and thinking about the basic concepts and dividing them up in a way different than English does or having basic words for things that are more complex 
uh, places or compounds in English. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of the first music uh, fields I gave a lot of attention to was words for mental states and emotions and such like. And there's a long section in the Seneca's document on those. Yeah. Um, and correspondingly, the uh, subjective qualities that relate to the mind state someone has when looking at or thinking about them or perceiving them in some way. So, mm. for instance, um, uh, and when it have a basic word for beautiful, for instance, it ha- has a basic word for um, appreciating or enjoying beauty. And then from that, we use a causative suffix to derive a word for beautiful. Oh, that's interesting. Sure. Okay. Um, and I also noticed you didn't have a simple word for good. Right. There are a variety of words for good, uh, for different kinds of goodness that are causatives or, um, or, um, similar derivations from, uh, words for, for mental states or for standards of judgment. Uh-huh. This is all very, very fascinating. And I think we could talk on and on for, for <laughs> hours, but mm-hmm. I think we kind of have to, uh, wrap up the, the, uh, featured conlang because we've been talking for quite a bit on it. Um, uh, we will link to Jim's page in the show notes and everybody who wants to, to talk about can, can, uh, can actually, you know, a- anyone who wants to, um, learn about Gazimbin, Gazimbin, look at the materials, can look at it. I'm sure that everyone who looks at it will even have a hundred more questions <laughs> that, uh, that they could <laughs> ask. Um, there's a mailing list um, on the main page. There's information for subscribing to it. So mm-hmm. if you want to ask questions, you might want to subscribe to the mailing list and then post the questions there so I can answer them for other people as well and have mm-hmm. archives of it publicly available. Okay, we'll link to that too. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Some people other than you have used this language for translation relays. Is that true? Am I remembering that properly? Um, yes. Um, David Peterson used it in the first inverse translation relay. And Lars Svensson, I think it was, used it in the second inverse translation relay. Ah, wow. <laughs> I'll have to ask David about that and see. Uh, that um, must yeah, have been if difficult. If you look at the main page, there's a, in the text list, um, there's the list of all the translation relays there, along with other things I've translated and written originally, and th- th- you'll find there the, the inverse translation relay. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I have a link to Lars's. Um, I don't know if the second inverse translation relay was ever webified, but the, second, the first tra- inverse translation relay is on my webpage, uh, on, on my site. Um, and, and you'll, you'll find David's translation, D- David's original text rather, in Gazembo, and then, um, um, people's translation of it into different sections, different languages. Um, uh, yeah, I found it. And it has some <laughs> corrections by you. Yes. That's great. That's great. All right. I'm going to stop asking questions now. <laughs> it's all right. Um, we're going to, that's, we didn't get many emails, but we did, uh, as far as feedback is concerned, we didn't get many emails that were interesting, but we did get some interesting comments. I just kind of want to really quickly point out, um, uh, says, is that his name or kid? Um, he's the, the guy who invented, uh, Ingemir. We tried to get him on the podcast too, but we couldn't get him. Um, he left a couple com- comments. One of them I want to highlight. He says, um, some of the 
He said that some of the oddities of Ingemir could be explained away from by uh, or by looking at how it fits into Akana. So he said, uh, for example, the unusual zero-marked speculative evidential originates in the fact that evidentiality marking was optional in PW, uh, that's Proto-Western, but became obligatory in most contexts in the in the development of Ingemir. And at one point, the few situations where ev- evidentiality was not marked, mostly questions and hypothetical s- statements, got reanalyzed as part of the paradigm. That's oh, really... That kind of makes sense in a bizarre way. <laughs> so that that goes back to something that I said in regards to sound systems, but it applies to strange semantics and stuff too, is if you have something that's unusual statistically or seems a little bit unnatural, ask yourself where it came from historically. Or, in this case, he was actually historically deriving a language and um, just naturally came up with this. Um, and I'm in the process of doing a derived uh, a historical conlang, and yeah, Stuff like this happens. Just weird things happen when you once you run the sound changes and try to figure out uh, different things. Um, and then he he mentions also our 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 the class two solid inedible objects and mushy edible objects was actually a merger of two proto Western noun classes. So that makes sense too, mm-hmm. and some other things. Um. And we also have a, had a Zoroastrian who was happy that we actually mentioned uh, Zoroastrianism. Or in, Avestan, uh, rather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, we, we mentioned Avestan and Middle Persian. He, he, he just was, uh, I'm glad that, uh, I guess he was tickled that we didn't ignore him. Right. And just talk about Latin in uh, Christianity. That's but, cool. I mean, I don't know if people read the comments, but there was a really interesting thing that related that the, a discussion that happened in the comments is um, there's a really interesting situation between Sanskrit and Avestan. Mm-hmm. So these are very closely related languages. There was some big, serious theological dispute there between <laughs> the, the Vedic religion and the Zoroastrian religion, because in Sanskrit, Deva means a god, and in Avestan, the cognate word Deva means a demon. Hmm. That's right. Who was it that had that comment? Uh, uh, I mean, that's me responding to somebody else talking about something, and then and oh, then that's right. The the <laughs> the sort has to be noticed. And I'd forgotten about the other part as well, and that the asura ahura um, word also got this switcheroo as well. So it's a that's an interesting bit of words coming to mean practically opposite things because of a cultural difference that developed along with. The language is separating. That's really awesome. Yeah, isn't that great? Uh, well, I think uh, that I think we'll I'll I'll leave that where it is. Okay, <laughs> and and uh, direct people to to read through some of our comments and and see what uh, what discussions are going on on in the in the comment sections on each post because it's um. Often there's some really interesting linguistic discussions that go on in there. Um, I think we'll wrap this up. I'll start with our guest, um, Jim. I, every uh, episode I ask these bozos um, 
if they have any final words of wisdom. So, do you have any final words of wisdom, or any any sort of last advice that you would give to all the people listening? Develop a language tool you can actually use it is a lot of fun. That's good. Okay. So, and William? No, I can't possibly get better than that. All right. And Mike? Same here. All right. Uh, we'll leave it at that, and I will say happy conlanging. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. Um, you're you're breaking up on us. Can you go back uh, again and say that again? You're breaking up on us. <clears throat> um, I will try to step over to where there's a better reception. But... <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the the last thing you were just saying? Um. So it's early. <laughs> Jim, do you have anything just about mechanics and basic noun phrase stuff? Jim, are you there? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Mike, do you have anything? Okay. Jim? I think in the... in. Jim, are you still there? I don't know. I... We may have lost Jim somehow. We've lost Jim. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Say what you're going to say. I'm going to try to call him back. Uh, hang up and call him back, okay? okay. Except that's going to make a lot of noise. So yeah. why don't you try you to call him back? Hold off. Wait. Yeah. I'm calling him back right now. Okay. Maybe he lost reception. Hello. Hey, Jim. We lost you for hey. a while. Yeah, um, I was still hearing you, but not very well. It was pretty sad to for a few minutes there, and then I lost mm. the connection. Uh, okay. So, um... Uh, what? I, what's going on? Um, so I had to go outside to get better reception, and then I had to Go back inside to get warmer clothes on before I went back outside again. Ah. Okay. Um, you sound like you're in a windstorm.
Yeah, it's windy outside here. Um, but the alternative is to be inside and not get as get even worse reception. Okay. Hmm. Well, we'll we'll see if we can we can uh, get through it. Yeah, sorry about that uh, breathing thing. I'm not used to wearing a headset, which is what I'm using here, and it's the microphone is like right in front of my mouth, oh nose. But <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm glad that William pointed it out because I wasn't I wasn't sure if that was I I didn't realize that was you breathing. I thought it was the wind on Jim's. End. <laughs> All right. So what are we doing next time? Um, the same thing every time. Every time, Pinky.